This is Archive Atlanta, episode 79, DeFore Murders. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Hey everyone, happy Friday. I don't know what level of pandemic quarantine you're on, but I'm on the level where I've hit a mental brick wall. Everything this week was hard, and that's coming from a place of privilege and employment, but it was still hard. There was emotions and yelling and just hard days. So I made this commitment, though. I want to bring you local history every Friday. And so this week, it's a shorter episode, uh, and it's coming in the form of true crime. A 141-year-old unsolved double murder in what today is one of the fastest changing parts of Atlanta. This is a story of crime, race, the legal system, confessions, and of course, cemeteries. What I thought was a simple, short story was really a five-year-long mystery with no happy ending. Martin and Susan DeFore came to DeKalb County in the 1840s, over from Franklin County, Georgia. Initially, they lived in Panthersville, which is today kind of the South DeKalb Mall area, but later they moved to the Old Montgomery Settlement at Bolton. They actually moved into the Old Montgomery House, which was on today's Chattahoochee Avenue, just north of Moore's Mill. Major James Montgomery served at Fort Peachtree during the War of 1812 and later operated a ferry crossing at the Chattahoochee River, farmed the land nearby, and also was postmaster and judge and pretty much everything you have to be when you're the sole settler in an area. The DeFores came to the area and took over Montgomery's ferry crossing, renaming it DeFores Ferry. So hopefully by now, all of you local people realize that these are a lot of the places that we get our road names from, and you may even live on Montgomery's Ferry or DeFore's Road. So the DeFore family grew, and as the couple had five children, um, they amassed a pretty good fortune because running a river crossing was a profitable business in that day, and they did well for themselves. By 1879, they were elderly and living peacefully in that same home they first moved into 30 years prior. On the morning of July 26, their grandson, Martin Walker, found his grandparents unmoving in their bed. He was 25 and lived just across the road with his mother. Per his usual custom, he headed over to see his grandparents around 6 a.m., and he found the back door unlocked. Seeing the figures still lying in bed, he knew something was wrong. They were normally awake by 4 a.m. So he runs out and he calls for help, and his son-in-law arrives, tears away the blankets to find Martin and Susan dead both decapitated by an axe, both in their late 70s. A dresser drawer was broken into, but $18 in silver was left in the house. Other valuables were left in plain sight, but Martin's wallet and boots were missing. There was a small loft area upstairs that was reachable only by a ladder, and when they inspected it, it looked like someone had been sleeping up there or possibly camping out and waiting. There was a lumber room really close to the house, and they found to have human feces there and a basket of cotton bales that had been urinated on. Later in the woods near the house, the boots were found alongside the remains of what was quote-unquote a watermelon feast. The police immediately sent out packs of hounds to sniff out a suspect, and crowds of men seemed to be stationed on every corner to find out who could kill an innocent Christian elderly couple. Not surprisingly, they round up a whole group of suspects, all of them African-American men. One in particular, Asa Gunn, would see his life greatly impacted by this. He was described as a drifter and a beggar, and the pack of dogs found him in a garden where he appeared to be stealing some watermelon to eat. 
So this, for detectives, connected them back to the scene of the crime. The dog actually bites his leg, and then the officers beat him and even hold a gun to his head, demanding a confession. Gunn swore his innocence. He didn't know what was going on. Um, He thought he was just being arrested for being in a garden that wasn't his. Eventually, a rope was placed around his neck, and the threat of a lynching was made unless he told the truth. The story is that Asa was kind of incoherent, um, claimed again that he didn't know, but then he did later make a confession. He's arrested and taken to the Fulton County Jail. In October of 1879, so four months later, he is charged by the grand jury for murder. Nine months after that, he's still in jail and he still hasn't seen a trial. And the papers have no idea what the state's evidence is, but they speculate that they needed this time to build up a solid case against Gunn. Finally, in July of 1880, the trial is set to begin. Weird coincidence, but on this same day when they were selecting juries for all of the trials that day, they appointed its first black foreman to another jury um, who couldn't perform because of his duties for work. But they also selected or tried to select a black man to sit on Asa Gunn's jury. Moses Calhoun was described as a mulatto who owned a hotel on Decatur Street, and it was Gunn himself who rejected the idea of a black man judging him for a crime. On July 7th, the trial is called. Judge Lester presides, and the county is represented by Solicitor General Hill. Defending Asa Gunn is public defender Frank Harrelson. Remember Frank, because he returns later in our story. So for all the witnesses that are called, the stories against Gunn follow the same pattern. It's like, I saw him, you know, walking six miles from the scene the next day, or I saw him near that part of town the night before. Um, He also, again, he did that confession, but this was after being beaten and threatened for his life. And then it's also said that he told a fellow inmate at the jail that he had something to do with the crime. The jury breaks for its decision and comes back with a guilty verdict. Harrelson immediately files for an appeal, and this new court case did not come until January of 1881. With a new jury, Harrelson argues that these supposed confessions are totally inadmissible, and they were made under duress and honestly didn't even make much sense. Gunn did not appear to have any facts of the crime scene correct, and his lawyer won. The confessions were not factored in, and so the case was dismissed. After two years in jail, Asa Gunn is free. Four years later, there's an article in the Constitution that talks about how Asa passed his time wrongly imprisoned. And a reporter visits the jail, and he's led into the dark, isolated basement cells. And there, in Gunn's former home, were incredibly detailed paintings of animals, a wagon, even a person on the ceiling, made with the smoke from a lone candle. So every night, he'd light his candles and then use the smoke to draw. And the prison warden goes on just about how incredible it was. I mean, all we have is the text in the paper, but I wish that we could have seen a photo of this. There was even talk about the police turning the space into an art gallery. Now, let's fast forward to 1883, four years after the murder. A black man named Joe Johnson is living in Macon, Georgia. And over the years, he tells a story to his girlfriend that he was involved in the infamous DeFour murders. She tells someone who tells someone else, and the story makes its way to Macon Police Lieutenant. Johnson is found arrested and then proceeds to give his full confession, implicating two other black men, John Brown and Tom Savinger. Tom Savinger is living in Fulton County, near the old DeFore homestead, just a mile from the town of Bolton. Officers find him working in a field, arrest him, and take him to jail. 
Now, Tom had been arrested before for the same crime. The day after the murder, he was one of several random black men that police picked up in suspicion, but he was released the following day. So by this point, Johnson has been taken to Atlanta from Macon, and he is also in jail. And Savinger has been told the story of his confession, and he's like, I don't know this guy. So to determine the truth, the police decide to bring five different men in front of Johnson's cell and see if he can identify Tom Savinger. And it turns out he can, and he does. And now the two men await the capture and arrest of John Brown, a woodcutter living in Coweta County. Joe Johnson is ordered by police not to talk to anyone, but this is 1883, and so a newspaper reporter miraculously makes his way into his cell and exchanges some chewing tobacco for a statement. And at first Joe hesitates, but then he shares his confession with the reporter. The story goes that Brown and Savinger had come to his house, asked him to go fishing, the men set out on their walk to the Chattahoochee, eventually getting to the crossing area on DeFore's property. And as they sat to rest in the shade of some trees, Brown said this was a really good place to make some money. And he suggests they kill the old couple and rob them. Johnson claimed he wanted no part of it, but as he stepped up to walk away, he was punched and a pistol thrown in his face. Brown telling him that he either comes along or he dies. So the three went inside the home. Johnson said it was he who held the lit match so that the men could see inside. Brown took an axe from outside and without hesitation murdered Martin and Susan detaching their heads almost completely from their bodies. They grab what they could, and outside, they stopped to count and distribute the money. And Johnson claims that he ran away as soon as he could and received no cut of the pot. And this all happened on a Friday. He did not see the two men again until Tuesday. Eventually, he was so scared that he moved his family to Macon, where he had lived ever since. The reporter also asked him to diagram the house and the crime scene, and Johnson did a pretty incredible job getting the details right. During this time, John Brown was picked up by police in Troop County and brought to Atlanta. So the three accused are paraded from the jail to the courtroom, and crowds of spectators line the streets of downtown Atlanta. Representing Brown and Savinger is none other than Frank Harrelson, who represented Asa Gunn years prior. In November of 1883, the case began in Fulton Superior Court with Judge Hammond presiding. Johnson, of course, had confessed, so it's only Savinger and Brown standing trial with Harrelson for their attorney and again Solicitor Hill representing the state. You can cue the kind of racist disparaging language about the two black men in the paper talking about their dirty and villainous appearances, and then they go into the list of witnesses. So a DeFore heir was called to testify, um, but there was just a recap of finding the bodies and what he saw at the scene. It was hard to even find a jury of people that were unbiased about this murder because this had happened several years prior. It was big news in Atlanta, and it was especially big news again during the gun trial. Other Fulton County Jail inmates were brought in to testify, claiming that Savinger had confessed to them and that the two men even tried to get a bottle of poison over to Johnson's cell. The jury leaves to deliberate and returns a guilty verdict. Brown and Savinger were sentenced to hang on January 11th, 1884. In early January, the men are waiting for a decision from Judge Hammond on whether a new trial would be granted. And finally, he decides to hear the case again on appeal and comes to the conclusion that Johnson's confession could not be sufficiently corroborated and the evidence did not authorize a conviction. That being said, the time and the cost of another trial would be a waste for the county, and so the case was dismissed. 
More than a year later, the men are freed from prison. And while Savinger is behind bars, his wife passes away, and his children, he wasn't sure where they were, but he had heard that they had been placed at the almshouse, which I talked about in last week's episode. So he heads there on foot, and when he gets to Buckhead, he's reunited with his kids. The tangible parts of the story are few and far between. The DeFore house was demolished by a son-in-law just a month after the murder, and the Montgomery DeFore land itself is unrecognizable, especially in the last two years as the quote-unquote west side booms with new development and residents. But there is one thing to see, hidden away between the trees, in the middle of businesses and warehouses and walking trails, there is a cemetery. The Montgomery Family Cemetery is on land cleared by Major Montgomery himself 178 years ago. When Martin and Susan DeFore were killed, they were also buried in this family cemetery, along with their children who died after them. This small plot holds about 27 graves, and it was written about even in the 1930s as already forgotten and abandoned, and being enclosed by a two-foot-high brick wall. And today, those brick walls are maybe a foot at best, but the entire thing is surrounded by a really tall fence with barbed wire. That same write-up from the 1930s says that a few graves lie outside the enclosure, marked with field stones, and today those are invisible to the naked eye. But in there, Martin and Susan DeFore are buried together in a single grave, and on their marker, it says, quote, Father, Mother, here are sleeping. Neath fair Georgia's lovely sky, while their own loved Chattahoochee near their grave is gliding by. In a boat veiled in deep silence, they have crossed death's darksome tide, and now freed from every sorrow, saints forever they abide. End quote. So there you have it, the story of the still unsolved murder of Martin and Susan DeFore. If you want to know more about the cemetery, I posted a photo um, and a video of me there uh, on Instagram and on Facebook, and just a give you a little bit of context clues on how to find it. It's pretty difficult. I want to thank you guys for listening. Remember to leave a rating or review wherever you listen to podcasts. I hope that everybody is doing well and is healthy, and I want you to have a great weekend, and I'll be here next week.